You're listening to the 11th episode of Season 2 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast goes into a strict Christian upbringing and traditional church climate not working out, but is not intended as an attack on faith. In fact, it's mainly about trying to retain some connection to God despite everything. It is about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my life that occasioned the writing of a song from my concept album, Peter Gray Grows Up. I'll continue for the two of you who are still listening. Episode 11, Who Are You Anyway? From the earliest age I can remember, I thought of God as a person. That was never really the question. The question over the years has always been, what sort of person? Some Christians spoke of God as if he were an intelligent thunderstorm hanging in the sky above waiting to rain lightning bolts of judgment down on people who laughed at the wrong thing or enjoyed the wrong thing, like Jupiter or Zeus. To others, God was their buddy. If they wanted powder snow on the ski slopes while they were skiing, or the salmon to be running while they were fishing, or their kid's softball team to win when he was playing, God existed mainly for the purpose of making their afternoon go well. The question for me has always been what God wanted. I've been told so many things. He wanted obedience, I was told. He wanted to be our friend, I was told, not usually by the same people. He mainly wanted us to go out and make more people into Christians like us, others thought. He wanted to heal the sick or society or the planet, others said, depending on who you asked again. He wasn't a he at all, but a fuzzy, warm, glowing life force, life source energy thingy you tried to feel and breathe and synchronize your energy with. Some desperately needed God to have a personality and even a sex, race, and political party affiliation, while others just as desperately needed him not to have any of those things especially a personality. I hadn't grown up hearing much about metaphysics, but Mark Vetter had always told me that God makes, rather than is, molecules. God made, rather than is, a material part of the universe. God instated, rather than exists, as a series of iterations within time. Mark saw the collectivity of all molecules in the entire universe as almost like a manifestation, visual aid, or model with which beings of spirit could artistically express, communicate, share, and represent spiritual things in molecules, like Michael painting his firstborn son's face, expression, and personality in acrylics on a board he'd found out to the trash. Plato and C.S. Lewis saw things much the same way. I've always been drawn to the idea that every messed up, inconsistent, contradictory, and imperfect person, place, system, ideology, or object was a shadow or failed attempt to realize something that on some plane of existence or level of awareness was far more real than this copy could ever be. That every government and social system you ever heard about was a failed attempt to implement a vision of something pure and real and workable. Inconsistencies, contradictions, imperfections, insincerity, and hypocrisy bother me more than they do most people. It was good to imagine that in some way, on some level, existed an ideal that this reality needed to be somewhat forgiven for having attempted, but not quite achieving. Our Plymouth Brethren group wasn't perfect, people kept telling me, but why did it feel like if they'd managed to make it work just how they imagined perfect looked like, there'd be even less room for people like me? My dad and my church failed to control and attitudinally adjust us totally, and it was those cracks through which we escaped being completely assimilated into something that needed us not to be us, not to be what it appeared we were intended to be either, designed to be. And was that a thing? Was I intended to be anything? 
Was there an I that I was increasingly becoming, needing to elbow various authority figures out of my life in order to be it? Needing to overcome being heavily indoctrinated in my formative years to try to mold me into something I wasn't ever supposed to be to begin with? Identity didn't feel like I could choose whatever I imagined I'd like. Identity was the daunting task. Something I wasn't that I had to find and become over the ceaseless objections of others who always demanded I wait until they felt they understood and were comfortable with who I was proposing being before I took any steps towards possibly, with their permission, subject to being rescinded at any time, offer not available outside the continental USA, pursuing that identity. I grew up memorizing verses like, God is love. The way I heard that one was, God punishes people who fail to obey his clear command to love other Christians, and he also might not send you to hell to be tormented eternally after all. The degree to which that was my take on it, or the impression I was given by my family and Sunday school teachers, and what the text itself seems to be trying to convey, is very open for debate. In my 20s, I started hearing the various texts I'd memorized growing up in my head opening up as things that could be interpreted in any number of different ways instead of just the one we were given. So, did God is love mean God punishes people who fail to obey his clear command to love other Christians? If so, a lot of people at my church were disobeying God hourly, and no doubt the Lord would soon be speaking to them. People would die, God would remove unity and order from their midst, and allow division and cognitive and emotional disorders to increasingly characterize the Plymouth Brethren. Or maybe, the verse presented itself to me in my head, it might mean a number of other things in there where it lived and floated around, spinning in there, bumping up against, he, he shall grow, grow up before, before him as a tender plant, plant and, and as a root, root out, out of a dry ground, ground and through, through faith, faith, and that, that not, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, God and his, his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him, and the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It was a pretty thick stew in there. So, did God is love mean that God was loving? A lot of people liked that reading. God is love meant that God was the most loving being in the universe, the winner at manifesting that trait. Can you be the most loving being in the universe when you're not in the universe? What if God is love meant God was made of love and there was nothing in him apart from love? So all the commands to kill the unborn children of your enemies or God would kill you, his drowning most of the known world, his creation of the lake of fire and outer darkness and eternal torment were all acts of love that we were too foolish and human to see in that light? Was that what was going on there? What if God is love meant that God was the source of love among any number of other things that he was the source of? That if you felt love, you knew that's where it was coming from. That when a cat or a literal child snuggled up to you for warmth and appeared to have grown very trusting and appreciative of you in general, when you felt that, you were feeling something coming from God? That was a nice warm reading of the verse. Good morning. What do you mean? Do you mean to wish me a good morning, or do you mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Or perhaps you mean to say that you feel good on this particular morning? Or are you simply stating that this is a morning to be good on? All of the Bible in my head started to do that in my late teens. Change from simple fortune cookie mottos, bumper stickers, slogans, posters, and cliches into what felt like impossibly shaped cut jewels with apparently limitless facets spinning to show first one, then another, then another. 
No doubt some saw this corrupted mind as a direct consequence of my taking literature and philosophy and psychology at university, including taking biblical and classical backgrounds to modern literature from Dr. David Jeffrey, who it turned out had been raised Plymouth Brethren and was determined to heap scorn on any interpretation of anything in the Bible that any Brethren person might agree with, including me sitting in his class. Every, Every Brethren, Brethren group is, is constantly trying to eventually become a group of a single remaining correct person, Dr. David Jeffrey told me three years before we had our division. It was competitive, not collaborative, in the meeting. Just like me, Dr. Jeffrey was often an arrogant, close-minded, nitpicking, judgmental prick, but he gave me a book about prayer once out of pity that I, too, had been raised brethren. And he sure seemed to be right about that group of a single remaining correct person a few years later. It made sense. And like me, he'd grown up in a system in which being writer about everything than regular folk was the name of the game, and it was a game, with cheaters and losers. I felt certain then that if there was a God, and I thought there was, it was obvious that a lot of what was being said and done in his name at meeting, doctrinally, socially, and administratively, served mainly as evidence of them not knowing him at all, not even knowing what sort of being he was. For me, he had to be more than just a certification sticker on the door of our church, certifying that though we weren't perfect, we were the one right place with the most correct Bible-obedient doctrine and practice. No weird, new, fun stuff allowed. The modern brethren claim that the one right place doctrine has fallen out of favor among them, but I can tell you that when we had our division, it was loudly, shrilly proclaimed at every meeting that we had. In fact, many people's prayers seemed designed to teach God a thing or two about exactly how the one right place doctrine was working out for us in our division. It felt, by age 20, like in order to actually know actual God more, I needed to increasingly close my eyes and ears and turn my back on anything much that was going on five times a week with special all-day weekend events among the Plymouth Brethren. I felt like if I wanted to actually know actual God, I'd have to rest my heart and mind and capacity to choose the direction of my own life from their cold, dead hands and take responsibility for pursuing God with it myself. I'd grown up with the Brethren version of surrendering all to God, knowing it definitely really meant surrendering it all to the Brethren and their every expectation. Big Brethren was watching us. I was to trust them as to how best to dress and talk and present myself, how not to entertain and express myself, what life paths were permitted to me, what courses of study. Most Christians will claim to you that their profoundest moments of peace and Sunday morning bliss come from vows of surrendering all to God but I'm pretty sure most of them 
have their own hands on their own all and have had for most of their lives. So surrendering it seems like some great magnanimous thing. Well, I knew in my 20s that I had to grab that all back before I could have any agency, whatever, in trying to follow God with it and figure out who I was intended to become with it. So I took my own life direction in my two hands, back from the elaborate influence, control, correction, group shaming, and intimidation mechanisms of my assembly. And that was, I found, the point at which the brethren first felt threatened and started to treat me as a threat. Suddenly I could be seen by everyone to not be one of us. I had started to live my life like an autonomous, free agent. I started walking visibly in that liberty from Christ that they had only talked about. I stopped constantly worrying about temptation, failure, sin, death, hell, and the devil to the exclusion of all else the way they seemed to need me to. Suddenly I was a bigger threat to the soul salvation and spiritual walk of the meeting children than new kids on the block and nirvana combined. There were always young brethren people who secretly and not so secretly got drunk and fooled around and they were treated like jokes, pretenders to the name that is above every name. But I was treated as something entirely different from that. I wasn't treated as a joke. I was treated as something dangerous. This is why I was forbidden socializing with my own peer group in Ottawa, asked not to come to youth group events anymore, because of what was going on inside, inside my head. It had nothing to do with whether I went to the movies or drank alcohol. It didn't start when I met the vetters. It started before any of that. When did it start? I remember it well. It started when I first slipped my restraining bolt and went off in search of Ben Kenobi on the edge of Tatooine's Dune Sea. When I first left Bag End to follow some dwarves on Gasp, an adventure to the Misty Mountains. When, despite being Vulcan, I joined Starfleet and started hanging around with humans and even experimenting with emotions. When I went off to find myself at Hogwarts. When I realized the ring I'd inherited from my relatives needed once and for all to be destroyed in the crack of Mount Doom, an epic distance from where I was living out my days. When I went into the wardrobe, left the Second World War to figure its own self out, and ended up in Narnia. In every worldly story I ever grew up hearing and reading, and many Bible stories as well, every time a character needed to go off and become who or she was destined to become, there were grouchy, judgmental, spiteful uncles, fathers, neighbors, and councils trying to hold them back. And increasingly, those in authority among the gathered saints so-called started to look just like that to me too. I was searching for God in the Bible and my life. That's what they wanted me to do, wasn't it? How they'd raised me to live? I was trying to figure out how to be useful to him, to be an experience and make good things for and with him. That was what they wanted me to do, wasn't it? Or wasn't it? If God was real and they were pushing something else on me, something they'd gotten me hooked on young, what exactly was that stuff? Withdrawal was no picnic, I can tell you. There weren't any glowy, euphoric mountaintop experiences anymore, feeling one with about a thousand people singing the same words all at once, believing everything the man at the front said and giving in every time someone told you they loved you and needed to speak with you about some concerns they had. It was very, very alone. It's been very, very alone. So far, it's been about 30 years in the wilderness, by the brook Cherith, visited and fed daily by Hugin and Munin, the ravens of thought and memory. I traded a lot to gain vision, to gain wisdom. I traded my Big, Big Brethren Book, Book of, of Bible, Bible answers, answers for a lot of lifelong questions. I still have far more questions than answers. In fact, that seems to be what God has always given me, just as Jesus did in his teaching. Things to think about, try out, and meditate upon, not facts to know and believe and obey. Go ahead, ask me anything. 
I'll tell you that for every question you ask, I have three more. If Jesus is the answer, we are made of questions. I remember taking a walk down one of those dark midnight farm roads under the stars with coyote song and frogs chirping in the distance and realizing that I was on a quest to find God and that my fellow brethren were actively trying to interfere. There was no contest. I believed that God was tough enough to stand on his own two feet, so to speak, without needing me or my brethren to help him do it. I realized that God and I would be able to connect despite them. I knew that not only didn't I need them to allow me to find God to hear things in the Bible intended for human beings to hear, they wouldn't be able to stop me either. I decided that there was a dark majesty and mystery to a journey to find God, rather than merely an obedient sitting silently and respectfully in meeting halls as clocks ticked audibly while we waited for the rapture. By 20, this was me, introducing myself to a God I'd been told I'd been following my whole life. taking their first breaths in the jungle, play fighting with other lion cubs and learning to hunt. Some survive and grow up to fight it out with other males, attract females, form prides to protect, and sire young. Some don't survive at all. Some are eaten by competing males or by their mothers. Some are sickly or are abandoned by their mothers and are fostered into zoos and wild animal acts where they live out their days in captivity, never seeing the jungle again. Others are born and raised in captivity, never knowing what it's like to chase down an antelope, spring on it, bite through its spinal cord, and eat it. Nice, good boy. You're not gonna believe this, but while I was recording this narration, my cat Mason jumped out of the crawl space in the ceiling, 
carrying a large field mouse whose spine he had just bitten through, and he is off and about to chase it around for a good while before he eats it. If I'm like a lion, and I can see why you'd say that I am, I'm like a lion born in captivity, raised in a dilapidated old-school zoo that was increasingly controlling and neglectful, eventually realizing that I was starving to death there, but still expected to present myself Sundays and weeknights in a tiny rusty cage, though there were no visitors coming to see us anyway. I'm like a lion, noticing the cage door was hanging half open all the time anyway, as no one had bothered to keep the zoo maintained. I'm like that lion, walking out of that cage one day to the screams of negligent zoo staff and disappearing into the woods to feed himself. I was not born free. I did not grow up free, unthinkingly thriving in freedom, familiar with the jungle and its creatures, and it was predicted that I could never thrive there. But I've gotten by. It's not been easy. I have no pride, no turf, no cubs. But like Lewis's Aslan, I am no longer a tame lion. Far from it. I don't present myself to that tiny cage to be gawked at Sundays and weeknights. And I eat better these days. Much better. And I go where I like. All kinds of good places. And if I see you, walking toward me with a whip and a chair, wearing a hat that clearly says lion tamer on it, know for certain that I am about to eat your face. I know you have a wonderful, brightly painted modern cage specifically designed for lions and other big cats with a live stream to the zoo's YouTube and Instagram channels, a coffee bar, snacks, and live music. I'll take my jungle. You can keep your informational brochures about big cats in the wild, your lion plushies, your fierce feline Funko Pop vinyls, and your big cat Snapchat filters. I won't be at your Unleash, Unleash Your, your own, own Inner, inner lion, lion Weekend Retreats. I won't be holding hands and singing in your, your circle, circle of, of life, life circle. circle. You see, I'm really starting to figure out what a lion is now. The only way I've found that works. And at the same time, I'm learning about the immortal hand and eye that framed my fearful and wonderfully made symmetry. You do your thing and leave me out of it. I'll be here, burning bright in the forest of the night because I know who made me. This song was one of the first ones written and recorded after the studio time was pretty much over, so I worked out the bits entirely on home gear, originally using a drum loop from a CD of drum samples I'd ordered from the internet. For a year or so there, I knew a guy named Adam who could play flute and slap bass and saxophone and so on, so my earliest home recording of this song has a now utterly abandoned, interesting, jazzy intro to it a la the drum loop and Adam sitting in my living room playing slap bass and saxophone. It always seemed a bit of a simple mullet rock middle-aged boomer thing, and I always wanted to add more grit and interest to it and make it sincere, but I've snarled to it too, despite it being a letter aimed at the Almighty himself. Having George, in his music store after dark, hammer out a very precise drum part, which changed when the song did, instead of looping endlessly like the drum loop, helped a lot. Rhythm and groove are far from my strong suits, but for this one, with me playing everything but drums, I worked with bass and verse guitars to have some kind of a groove thing going.
I also tried to recreate at home some of that ocean waves crashing on the rocks kind of sludgy chorus guitar I'd picked up on in the studio. I think my Neil Young electric roots can be heard in this song for sure. All in all, this is an incredibly simple, unlayered song for me, designed to sound like a bar band playing. The vocals are only a main vocal with one higher and one lower harmony. Cause I can't help but wonder Because I just don't understand And I don't know who you are anymore I don't even know My lead guitar work is just a simple bend based somewhat on You Can't Always Get What You Want by the Rolling Stones. I think David Gilmour and Neil Young conspired to hook me on guitar bends. Maybe the fanciest trick I tossed into the mix was a bit of a tape loop effect, like Pink Floyd's Us and Them. I know. I know. You're not like Jupiter. Jupiter. You're more than Zeus in one of his bad moods. Standards 
is high. If I'm your son, I'm a prodigal man. Prodigy, scared to come home. And I don't know why. This all sounds like teenage age. But I need some answers now. Get too many damn, but I 